Gospel of Mark. Just praying a little bit about what to get into, and I'm not sure how God will lead us in the, the weeks to come. It's been a while since we've done any kind of a survey of the books of the New Testament. I know through the years I've taught through all of them, but I want to teach this, this evening a lesson entitled Trusting in Jesus, Introducing the Gospel of Mark. And I want to read the first five verses, and we will teach from there, beginning with verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, which shall prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. So let's have a have a word of prayer. Uh, Father, tonight, as we look into these verses, we need you to speak to all of our hearts Help me to clarify anything that is complex. We pray that we would all leave here with a greater love and appreciation for this book. These things we pray for in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen, amen. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels from church history. John Mark is the one that was believed by many to have been the writer of this. If you remember from the book of Acts chapter 12, when Peter was in prison and he was delivered, first thing he did was go to the house of John Mark's mother, where they were holding a prayer meeting. And it's believed that in Peter's ministry in traveling, that Mark was his helper, and that Peter had passed on a lot of information to Mark. And with a lot of that, Mark then sat down and put to paper a lot of what we have here in the narrative of uh, Christ's life. Now, he doesn't get all into the birth aspect as Matthew and Luke does, but it's a remarkable book, and you can sit down and read it probably in an hour and a half if you start with chapter 1, verse 1, going all the way through the end of chapter 16, verse 20 there. And you'll pick up a lot of things about the ministry of Christ. Now, the first thing we want to mention is that in verse 1, when it speaks about the beginning, notice that anything that has to do with the gospel, we don't start it in this scenario here with Adam. He doesn't start it with Abraham. He doesn't start it with Moses or even David. He speaks of the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the scriptures tell us that in former times, Abraham had the gospel proclaimed to him. But in the manner in which Jesus is going to proclaim it in the Gospels, Abraham wasn't preaching it to the Hittites. Abraham had an idea that the sacrifices had some concept and notion of uh, a Messiah or someone who would die in, in someone's place. But, but here, when we speak of the Gospel, we need to know it means glad tidings, good news. When we talk about what Jesus preached, it is news that would make you happy. Something that would put a smile 
on your face. It's not bad news. It's not depressing news. And the reason it's the gospel of Jesus Christ is because it's about him, but it also comes from him. And Jesus Christ as a title, Jesus is his first name in the sense that it's similar to Joshua and its spelling in Hebrew. But Christ is not his last name. The title to describe the anointed one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. And I think we should also make sure that we understand that Jesus Christ is not to be used as a fill-in word for cuss language. The scripture says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. So as Mark is beginning, and he's proclaiming the gospel and then bringing the connection with Jesus Christ, then you'll notice he mentions the Son of God. Now he's explicit here. He wants you to know right up front. He's opening up the cage door, and when the truth flies out, he's telling you what he believes in the beginning. That Jesus is the Messiah that fulfills all Old Testament prophecies and types and that he's the son of God. Now, why would that be important? Because ancient Jews then and modern Jews now do not believe that Jesus is the son of God. It would be the same thing with, with Muslims. But Mark wants us to know plainly he believes it. And all of what he's going to tell us in this book is going to be designed to lead you to the same conclusion. So this is why when he works his way all the way to the crucifixion of Christ in chapter 15, verse 39, the Roman soldier who observes the death of Jesus, he says, surely or truly, this was the son of God. So in the beginning of the book, Mark is making it very plain. I believe God has a son. At the end of the book, he's demonstrating that a non-Jewish person also came to the very conclusion that Mark was at when he started that Jesus is the Son of God. There have been people, and there are people today, who doubt and deny what we have written in this book. They deny the supernatural stories. They deny all of the miracle elements of it. Because in the Gospel of Mark, the first half of this this uh, book of 16 chapters, the first half deals with him casting out devils. It seems like every nine verses he's casting the devil out of somebody. And then the next part of it deals with his entry into Jerusalem with a variety of different teachings. Then he gets into the prophecies, chapter 13, and the rest of the time is dealing with his passion and his sufferings. And then in the end, the resurrection. Now, I want you to know that Mark wrote this with the understanding that when readers encounter his text, he wants them to come to the conclusion that they can trust in Jesus. Now, other people who write about this don't necessarily come to that conclusion, and I know that because I have commentaries on my shelf that say otherwise about that, and there are lots of preachers who denounce these supernatural aspects of the Lord Jesus Christ. People have been writing books for a long time. There was a German writer back in, I think, uh, over 100 years ago, who wrote a book, and, and it was a novel. And in that novel, he described Jesus as someone who was just sitting around thinking about a Savior, and then finally came to the conclusion he was the Savior that was to come. And the whole point of this, this German writer, he was trying to get people not to believe in the Scripture. There was another book written 100 years ago called When It Was Dark. And this wealthy unbeliever 
wanted to discredit the uh, scriptures. So he wrote a book in which an archaeologist went to Jerusalem and, and uh, fabricated some kind of inscription where they said they found the body of Jesus and they went through all of this kind of stuff because he came to the conclusion that if you could discredit the resurrection, then you could cause multitudes of people to turn from the truth and go back into sin. Now, all four of the Gospels make sure that they detail Jesus' crucifixion. And they also make sure they detail his resurrection. So Mark also wants people to believe in this. Now, I don't understand why so many people don't want to believe what the texts say in the first place anyhow. But I think behind all of this is just this idea that, that we shouldn't be naive. But, but why is it naive to believe that the blood of Jesus can cleanse you of all sin? And why is it naive for you to believe that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is also the same power that's going to raise us all up in the first resurrection? There is a heaven, there is a hell. Jesus heals, Jesus saves, Jesus delivers. Jesus does everything that's recorded here in the scripture. And when all we have left is some human figure that we can look at as just a good teacher, then it's really not worth serving. And with that in mind, I think that when a preacher gets up and spends week after week, hour after hour, undermining the value and the authority of the Bible and teaches people that these things are not true, that these are legends, I can't understand then why when people stop coming to church because they think it's all irrelevant anyhow, then they're now trying to create ways to get people to come to a church to learn about a Bible that everybody's saying isn't true anyhow. And it's an amazing concept. It's, it's a cycle that we see taking place over and over, and we see it more and more out here in the heartland, right here on the Nebraska-Kansas border, I would, I would say probably 50 or 60% of the churches that we have in a small town have no desire to really reach people and encourage them in Scripture to believe God's Word. They're just doing what they can to hold on, hoping that this thing will last long enough for somebody to bury me. Yeah, that's, that's essentially what, what a, lot of it, a lot of it is. And it doesn't have to be that way. If we have someone in front of us who believes the Bible, and if the Bible is taught, then that person is then going to be able to transmit that same kind of love and affection for God to other people. If I have to sit and listen to somebody talk about the Lord, I want them to burn with a passion and a fervency for God. And every time I'm in their presence, I want it to be a burning bush experience. I don't want to sit and listen to somebody talk about God and then walk away saying, what in the world was that about? And I don't even think he believes what he said. But to have someone like Mark who would sit down and put all of this together so that generations of people wouldn't forget it. Imagine if all we had was our memory. And that's all they had in Abraham's day. You just passed it on orally. But listen to what Mark says. As it is written in the prophets. Now he knows that there are going to be readers of this text that are going to be Jewish. Some of them are not going to be Jewish. That's why we have some of these stories in here to deal with non-Jewish people like the Roman soldier. But here he starts with a quotation from Malachi chapter 3. It's interesting. 
He said, I'm sending my messenger. What's a messenger? Somebody with a message and he's going to prepare the way. Now, I think the reason Mark is using this verse is because he's trying to call attention to what was happening in Malachi at the end of chapter 2, which was the setup for chapter 3, verse 1, because when they wrote the Old Testament books, there were no chapters and verses. It just all flowed. So just before the Gospel of Matthew, you have Malachi. So look at Malachi and the end of chapter 2. The end of chapter 2. And, and let's, let's look at verse number... Oh, let's start with, I'll just read 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet all of you say, how have we wearied him? When you say, everyone that doeth evil is what? Good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or where is the God of judgment? So Malachi is saying we have a condition right now where practitioners of evil, doers of iniquity are esteemed. And we're turning around telling people God is happy with you and God is proud of you. Now think of that. That's what verse 17 is saying. That kind of confusion and misrepresentation of the Lord is what leads to the verse in chapter three. I'm sending my messenger because obviously I don't have a spokesman. And I don't have people that are speaking for me clearly in the area where you are. So he said, my messenger is going to come and prepare my way because right now everything is crooked. How do you know it's crooked? Because they call an evil good and good evil. That's when you know it's crooked. In any nation, in any culture where God's word is despised and looked down upon. And then whatever is evil is exalted and put in the place of God's word so that it has just the same value and authority over people's lives. It's at that point that God needs to send somebody to prepare the way. He has to have a messenger. And whenever God wanted a move of God in scripture, all he needed was a man or a woman to open up their mouth and declare the word. Every village, every city, every town is just one person away from a move of God. I've always known that wherever I go to preach a revival in a church, in that church, there's usually one person that's a key to a revival in that church or one person in that town. That's a key to God moving in that in that community. It could be the town drunk. It could be the most self-righteous person, whatever it is, however God works. If God touches that heart and they come to the Lord, wonderful things can take place. So praying and fasting and seeking the face of God will we'll give a minister an idea who that key person is. Because when a, when a minister comes to minister the word of God in a community, he's like a doctor that's dealing with a patient that's got pain. That doctor goes to poking around in different places, and the moment you say, ouch, he discovers where the area is, and he stays right there. He stays right there. So it's the same way in doing ministry. Somebody mentioned prayer. And folks go to groaning, and you stay right there on that prayer. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned unforgiveness or walking in love, and people start bowing that head like, oh, my goodness. Then you just stay right there. Stay right there and deal with it. So Mark says that this messenger is connected with the prophecy from Malachi. Then in verse 3, he brings in a verse from Isaiah chapter 40. 
and he uses verse number three, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And if you look at the preceding verses in, in, that, in the context of Isaiah 40, again, we're looking at an area where there was trouble, iniquity. So God is needing someone to open up their mouth and talk. It, it's not enough to just live the Christian life. Sometimes we have to talk with our mouth. Now, we should live our faith out loud. But some people are not going to understand what is going on unless you say something. And if, if you don't open up your mouth and make a whole lot of noise, then, then people won't know. So to prepare the way of the Lord, we need to know where the way of the Lord is. To make his paths straight, we need to have some idea <clears throat> about what his paths are and what a straight path looks like. Jeremiah goes into the uh, temple courts of the Lord, and he says, amend your ways. See? Amend your ways. And then he says on another occasion, I'm calling you to return to the old paths. See? The old paths. Now, sometimes the old paths are better than the new path. But you can't call people back to the old path unless you have some kind of recollection of what the old path was and where to find it. And this is how it is in ministry, in walking with the Lord. John the Baptist is going to be the one that all of this is connected to. And when he opens up his mouth and begins to preach and calls people to repentance, he needs to be able to bring them back to an understanding of something they at one time practiced. Yeah, at one time practiced. When you sit with Christians who have been walking with the Lord for a long time, then, of course, you have a lot of memories, you know. And since most of the time when I'm traveling and, and, and preaching, I'm in spirit-filled churches, then most of us are reminiscing about what Pentecost used to be 50, 60, 70 years ago, even before I was born. And I hear stories of what services were like. I mean, oh my goodness, people had church just about every night of the week, you know. There's always a prayer meeting or a revival meeting or something going on somewhere. And, and people had a hunger and a passion for God. People lived in the altar at the end of the service. Sunday night was essentially the evangelistic services and people would come from other fellowships and come out to be a part of that. But I mean, other, other than what we do on Sunday night, because I'm somewhere else on Sunday morning, I don't know of any churches that have Sunday night services around here. I mean, they're as scarce as hen's teeth. And if you mention to somebody, well, you know, maybe you ought to try church on a Sunday night. Sunday night? What are you, a fanatic? We go to... We go to church already on Sunday morning and it lasts 30 minutes and it's 15 minutes longer than it needs to be. See, so there's always people that complain about this or or, or complain about complain about that. But but the old paths sometimes are important, very important. And, and this is what John the Baptist is going to be involved with here. So in verse four, this man, John, is out here baptizing. Now, we need to give some information. Luke tells us about John's background, but Mark doesn't. We call him John the Baptist, but he was not a member of the Baptist denomination. There was no Baptist denomination. This man, this man is called the Baptist because he baptized people. Now, according to the Gospel of Luke, his mother and father were elderly. And they wanted children. 
unable to have children. Scripture says they were righteous, blameless. They walked according to the principles of God and obviously had been praying for God to provide them with a child because one day the angel of the Lord appeared in the temple and said to Zechariah, your prayer is heard. So either he was praying or she was praying or they both were praying. How many older people do you know that they're trying to, trying to have babies in their 60s, 70s? When was the last time you tried that prayer? It's probably been a while, huh? Yeah, been a while, yeah. Okay, but Zachariah and Elizabeth, they wanted a kid, and the angel of the Lord told them, this child you, you're going to have is going to turn the hearts of many people to God. That's what he said. And it's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children. So even in ancient times, if you think you had fathers who neglected their kids today, you had it back then. You had it back then. And he said it's going to turn the hearts of the ignorant towards the wisdom of the just. So John the Baptist is going to have a ministry that's going to be turning people to God and reconciling families. And his message is going to be repent. Because of the kingdom of God, it's at hand. Now, most people wonder how in the world could repentance ever do all of that. Well, it can, and it will, if it's preached. And repentance is a change of the mind, but it's a change of the lifestyle, and it's a going in a total different direction. So Elizabeth here, she became pregnant, and uh, her husband, because he didn't believe as he could have believed, he ended up unable to speak for approximately nine months, and I think some people would call that a blessing. Elizabeth might have been happy about that if some of us, if some of us men had to go nine months without talking. I wonder how that would would, would work out. I, I think Kathy might smile a little bit. You know, a, a Amy might run around with some banners in the backyard or something like that. But but it, it's amazing though. He couldn't say anything, and then when the baby was born. Then they said, well, well, Elizabeth, what are you going to name the kid? And she said, John. And they said, well, you don't have anybody in your family named John. And she said, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, he, he, he's going he's gonna to agree with me. So they asked Zachariah, and when they asked him, he asked for a little tablet so he could write. And when he started writing, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak. The Spirit of God came upon him. He began to prophesy. And tell them what John's ministry would be like. And in the end of the prophecy, it concludes the chapter by saying, John the Baptist was in the wilderness until the day of his showing. So here he is, the son of a priest, should have been preparing to work in the temple, but God had another mission for him. He's living out in the wilderness and out in the desert, wearing camel hair, eating locusts. And wild honey. So that, that tells you that you don't have to follow in the family uh, vocational line. If God has something more for you, something better for you, you can do that. And that's what John did. So he spent all of that time there. And then when he came out of the wilderness, looking like a mad, crazy man, he started preaching, telling everybody to repent and turn from their sin and turn from their iniquity. And it's at that point that people started listening to him. And he was saying, look, you need to be baptized. What he said, come out here, get baptized. And he wasn't saying that my baptism in the Jordan is going to take the place of the offering of the lambs in the temple. He already knew his cousin was going to handle that. But he was telling them, 
Come out here and repent. And as an act of your repentance, confess your sins. Be baptized in water. So when you look here in verse 4, you can see the baptism of repentance connected with the remission of their sins. But you can also see that because he baptized them in the river at the end of verse 5, they're confessing their sins. So notice the connection. Baptism, then the issue of sin. This is a very important thing, folks, because when he's standing out there telling people to, to come, baptism is connected with faith. It's connected with the ability to believe. There were no infants rolling down a hill trying to get to the water who couldn't walk and somebody carrying them down there. These were all people who could understand what John was saying, and they were putting one footprint in front of the other going down in order to be baptized. And that's the pattern all throughout Scripture. Now, Mr. Mr. Spurgeon, many, many years ago, was, was talking about this. And <clears throat> as, a, as a little rabbit trail, when I used to go down to Fort Lauderdale and has to, had to uh, do all those classes with uh, so many of these Lutheran and mostly Presbyterian people. And I was working on my doctorate and stuff. You get in all these different conversations with, with preachers. And the one thing Presbyterians down there love to talk about is Calvinism. God predestined some to go to heaven, but then others are not predestined to go there. So they go to hell. So they call that double reprobation. You know, if God don't say you can get in, you can't. And if God says you have to stay out, you're on the outside. So I, I would say to them, okay, well, what do I need to do to be part of the elect group like you wonderful folks? They said, well, if, if when you were a kid, if they brought you up in front of the church and they put the water on you, that applies the covenant to your life. And when the covenant is applied to your life, then you are now a part of all of this. I said, really? I said, the water did all of that. He said, yeah. He said, you, you put the water on, on, on the kid, and then the kid is in. I, I said, okay. I said, now, you, you like Mr. Spurgeon as much as I do, because you say Mr. Spurgeon liked to preach all the Calvinism. But I said, did you know Mr. Spurgeon was a Baptist? And Mr. Spurgeon didn't like the idea of baptismal regeneration. So he had a sermon one time that he preached, and I, I, I brought a, look, a few excerpts that I wanted to read because he was dealing with the Church of England, and in the Book of Common Prayer for the Church of England, in their catechism, they have a question they ask the little kid when they're walking them through this. They ask the kid, okay, what is your name? And then he'll say, say, how did you get your name? And so in the Common Prayer it said, my godmothers and godfathers at my baptism gave me my name, wherein I was made a member of Christ the child of God, and an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. So according to the Church of England in the Book of Common Prayer, once you're baptized as a kid, you instantly become a member of the body of Christ, and you become a child of God. So Mr. Spurgeon said, that doesn't quite sound like it's kosher. And so then he went on to read some of the words the priests have to say. Then the priests say to the kid, Seeing now, dearly beloved brethren, that this child is regenerate, and grafted into the body of Christ's church, let us give thanks unto Almighty God for these benefits, and with one accord make our prayers 
unto him that this child may lead the rest of his life according to this beginning. Now, that kid has no idea what is taking place at all. So here's the point. Baptism without faith cannot produce remission of sins. It cannot produce a regenerate nature. When Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He's saying that to a Jewish man who is of Jewish descent, who has been circumcised with the covenant of Abraham in his flesh. But despite that, Jesus looks at this educated man and says, if you want to get in the kingdom and be over here where I am, you have to become what I am. And in order to do that, you have to be born anew or born from above. Think of that. So John the Baptist is out here telling people, come out here in the water, be baptized, come out here in the water. And one by one, you have hundreds and hundreds of people making their way out there. Now, I would have loved to have just been on the banks to see that, you know, what that must have been like. But back in the 60s and, and, and maybe the early 70s when the Calvary Chapel uh, group was growing out there in California and they had the uh, Jesus movement, it was pretty big out there. C can you imagine Chuck Smith and all of those guys out there baptizing upwards of five, six, seven thousand people at one time in the ocean? Think of that. See, at one time in the ocean. And these are all people who had heard the gospel and believed. Now, if I thought that the application of a few droplets of water on an infant would produce regeneration, then I'd get every preacher I know. We'd run through every hospital and we'd throw it on babies whether the parents wanted it to happen or not. And I'd just say, be born again right now. Now, understanding that, when I lived in the Middle East, we immersed people in bathtubs sometimes, filled up the bathtub with water, laid them down in there. There were times when, because we were in the desert and couldn't get to any water, we were absolutely worried that somebody would see us. And sometimes we'd have service late at night, 11 o'clock at night, outside of Jeddah somewhere, and then there would be people pouring water on somebody. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the whole point I'm trying to emphasize is this one thing. The baptizee needs to believe. It is of no value if the baptizee has no idea why this is occurring and what's going on. I know that you can baptize a baby as well as an adult, a male as well as a female, and it have no effect on them. I've met plenty of adults in my lifetime who've gone down in the water a dry devil and have come up a wet devil. Never change. So I don't want you to under, under the impression at all that I'm saying that water changes anybody. I'm simply saying that water of baptism is simply an outward witness and demonstration of an inward work of grace that's been taking place by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is a wonderful testimony to have and to demonstrate in front of your friends. It doesn't matter how old they are. I've baptized older people, I baptize young ones, and I'd love to get my hands on the ones that have given me problems. Those are the ones we really, 
He said, come on out here into the water now. And then we just take our time. You see how he's giggling in the back? If, 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 if he ever lets me get him out in the river somewhere, I'm going to say, hold him a little longer. Make sure it takes. Yeah. Okay. So verse 5. <coughs> verse 5. Notice all the people that came from the different regions. Now, John the Baptist's message was different. He was the son of a priest. He knew Judaism. The synagogue was popular. He didn't hang out there. The message that he preached was contrary to anything a Sadducee, a Pharisee, a scribe, or anybody else would have proclaimed. So it was all new to them, but despite the fact that it was new, they all came to be baptized in the River Jordan, and they were confessing their sins. And you know if people are standing up confessing their sins, God is doing something. Most people are not going to get up and talk about their faults. Unless God's doing something. And usually when people are baptized today, the, the minister will say something like this. We have so-and-so who's about to be baptized. Would you like to give your testimony? And they'll say, I want the world to know that I believe in Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And he cleansed me of all of my sins. And I want to be baptized in front of everybody so that they'll know it. Then they'll baptize and then they come up. But imagine if somebody stood up there and said, I'm being baptized because I was a scoundrel. I robbed people. I plundered. I did all kinds of things. That's what they were doing. Confessing their sins. See? Confessing. The scripture says, he that confesseth and forsaketh his or her sin shall find mercy. Shall find mercy. So verse 6 then. John was clothed with camel's hair, with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. That's a good diet for you. And preached, saying, somebody after me is coming who's mightier than me, the latchet of whose shoes I'm not worthy to stoop down and unloose. So he's telling us in his humble way, Mark is letting us know that John the Baptist knew that his ministry was seasonal, just for a little while. And that's a good ministry to have. The Bible even says of John the Baptist that he did no miracles. See? He had a ministry without miracles. His birth was miraculous. His conception was miraculous. But he didn't lay hands on the sick. He didn't cast out any devils. Mark is introducing the gospel with John because he's helping us to see John prepares the way with the message of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus picks up the same message John the Baptist preached. Then Jesus goes into the synagogue and casts out devils and heals the sick and ministers the word of God. And I think that's pretty good when Jesus goes to preaching the message that you once preached. Yeah. I think there are a whole lot of sermons Jesus has heard down here on planet Earth that he wouldn't preach. But for John the Baptist to have the Lord take up that message. So John is pivotal in John's outline and in his description of the ministry of Christ. And our appreciation of the Lord should be great because of what John did. He paved the way. And you have to have a trailblazer. Jesus said no prophet in the Old Testament was greater than him. Nobody born of a woman is greater.
This man makes it makes it very plain that John the Baptist had a ministry that was powerful and was unique and people were coming from all directions. I think you could call this a revival. I think you could. If they're coming from all directions, different regions, the wealthy, the poor, the loved, the unloved, they're coming all throughout the land of Judea. The message must have been sounding abroad. People were hearing about what he was doing and here he comes and baptizes them one by one. Okay, so then this same man, as Mark is describing it, he records John as saying, I've baptized you with water, but he, that's a capital H, Jesus, is going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So John is prophesying about what's going to happen in the future, which did occur on the day of Pentecost, as had been prophesied, and as Jesus has it proclaimed in Acts chapter 1 also, because he told the disciples, just hold on here in Jerusalem before you take off running around the world. The power of God's going to come upon you. That's exactly what happened. 120 people were gathered together in that, that upper room. So here's what we're getting at. For somebody to take the time to read the Gospel of Mark, they're going to learn about the greatest person to ever walked this earth. They're going to learn about somebody who was able to find a, a, a disciple that had a mother-in-law that was sick and healed her. And that's pretty good. You get mom-in-law healed. Jesus goes and finds somebody with a withered hand and says, stretch your hand out. And the healing takes place. He finds a man in Mark chapter 5 full of the devil. We don't even know how many demons were in this man. You can call them split personality, dissociative disorder, whatever you want to call them. Schizophrenic. Jesus healed this man and he was totally made whole. And the scripture says people were so shocked by it because when they found him, he was sitting clothed and in his right mind. So that tells me that as long as he was under the power of the devil, he was out of his mind and he was ripping his attire off. But here he was now clothed. So the ministry of Jesus continues. Mark is the only one that tells us about the time where the Lord pulls a man outside of the city and ministers to him, bring healing to him. Jesus had one man spit in his eyes. How would you like to be blind? And the master said to you, come with me. And then it's quiet. You can't see, but you can hear. And then all of a sudden you hear somebody making the sound like they're about to spit. And then you feel something moist hitting your eyes. Then the Lord says to you, go believing and seeing. And his eyes open up. That's what happened. Mark's the one that tells us about the time where he touched somebody's tongue. And the tongue was loosed. So some of the unique miracles of Jesus' ministry we find in the Gospels. And Mark is the one who, in his abbreviated way, is trying to demonstrate one thing. He's the son of God, and we want you to know he's more than a man. He's more than a man. And the person who believes this, they'll come to the end and know that this person certainly was the savior of the world. Now to finish this up, the end of Mark in chapter 16, you will note that it goes to verse 20. It goes to verse 20. 
And you can see in verse 14, 11 of them were sitting there at dinner and Jesus rebuked them because of their unbelief. They didn't believe he had been raised from the dead. But in verse 15, Jesus tells them to go into all the world and preach what? The gospel. That's the same word we ran into in the first chapter in the first verse. So we began with the gospel of Jesus. Now we're concluding with Jesus telling them to take the gospel to the nations. Jesus' ministry was localized to the promised land of the 12 tribes. In verse 16, he that believes and is baptized shall be what? But he that believeth not shall be damned. Notice the connection. The faith and the baptism and the salvation. But then also notice the second clause. You can be baptized but lack the faith and you're still doomed. Is that clear? Should be, should be fairly clear. So believing and baptism are connect, connected. But unbelief whether somebody's been baptized in nine different churches is not going to help them at all if they disbelieve the truth of God's word. And he says, these signs shall follow them that believe. Not the preacher, not the deacon, not the trustee, not the board member, not the ruling elder. It says those that believe, and then it lists all these different things. Some of the things Jesus did in the gospel of Mark and in the other gospels were never done in the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament is a blind person healed. Nowhere in the Old Testament is a devil cast out. In the Old Testament, we have illustrations of waters being parted miraculously. See? But I can't think of anybody ever walked on water like Jesus did. So when he comes to the end of his journey and he's talking to his disciples, he says, these signs shall follow them that believe. And then he lists a few things that didn't even happen in the Gospels. Nobody spoke with new tongues. Nobody was taking up any serpents. And people weren't drinking any deadly thing. And it didn't harm them. So in the book of Acts, we can see the new tongues occurred. We know that Paul reached into a pile of sticks and a, a viper. A snake held on to him, and I mean, I mean, the people stood by and saw that snake hanging on him, thinking that venom is going right into him, and it's, oh my goodness, this man must be a murderer if this kind of bad fortune has come to him. And they just stood there waiting for him to take two steps and fall over dead. And, and when he didn't, didn't die, and he shook it off, and he said, oh, get off of me. And then he took off and went back to work. About a half hour later, 45 minutes later, he had no problem. They fell down and said, he must be a god. And they started worshiping. Oh, my goodness, you're wonderful. You're wonderful. See, first they thought he was a murderer. Now he's a god just because a snake couldn't kill him. So here we have instances where things are going to take place in the future that haven't occurred as of yet. Now, I do need to to add that if, if you've ever had to go down in the south in the Appalachian, Appalachian Mountains where they have some of those churches where the people have aquariums and all of that, just saturate that place with your absence and stay away from anything like that. Unfortunately, in my lifetime, I have met preachers who 
have been in places like that hadn't been me. Because if I was in a church like that and somebody rolled in an aquarium with a bunch of snakes in it and everybody started dancing and said, I'm telling folks, we're going to demonstrate what kind of faith we have. We're going to dance around the church with a snake. I'm telling you, I'd, I'd make a door in the wall over there and I'd get out of there. Just that kind of foolishness has nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about here. And, and I dare say that uh, for those who do that, it, it's, not even, it's not even a right form of Christianity. I just think faith is all misplaced that, that do that kind of a thing. But I do know this, if you're working for God and doing things for the, the king all over this world, and you have something bad that happens to you, God's big enough to take care of you and keep you. I heard a testimony one time of a lady who was working as a maid and she was in a house doing some some work for the people there, washing some clothes and a few other things. But she said she got really, really tired. It was a hot day and she saw on the counter a glass with a clear substance in it. And her testimony was she reached and drunk it, and just as fast as you can. You know how you take water down in three or four swallows. That's exactly what she did, and realized just when that last swallow had gone down, she had swallowed Clorox. And she didn't go to a hospital. See, this is just her, her testimony. She didn't go to a hospital. All she did was open up that Bible to Mark 16 and said, Lord, I'm living right here today. They drink any deadly thing. On Harvey. She was poor, didn't have any money to go to a hospital, but never had a problem. Never had a problem. Just went on, continued to live with the king. I, I can tell you stories of, of people overseas that, because of their walk with God and having to pioneer churches going through the jungles of Congo and Rwanda and places like that, that they've been bitten by mambas before. People that had to face blackwater fever. I mean, a lot of folks have been carried out of Africa several times, sick. Some people have had to die over there. But I also have met those who've had these terrible circumstances where out there in the middle of nowhere, you have no clinic, you have no hospital, and all you can do is get on your knees and say, Oh God, don't let me die out here. I'm believing your word. And God keeps them. Yeah. So yeah, we're not trying to tempt God. But God has made provision for us so that if we walk with him, we'll be fine. When I had malaria and I was over in Jordan, I thought I was going to die. I'd lay there in that bed, had nine or ten blankets on me, had chills and couldn't even fall asleep or anything like that. Just a terrible thing, terrible thing. And... I had a high school friend with me who was there studying Arabic also, and I was living with an Iraqi friend. And I told my American buddy, I said, look, if I die here, said, you, you, you need to know my mother's not getting on any plane coming over here. And, and I said, something happens to me over here, you're going to have to pray and just ask God to do anything. That touch me, heal me, raise me up, just anything. I said, just pray and say to God, this, he's a young man. He hadn't done everything you wanted him to do, and so on and so forth. Well, the last thing I remember laying in that bed was 
him and Afir, my Iraqi roommate. He had fought on the, the Iraqi side of Gulf War I was I, when I was on the American side. He's a few years older than me, and here we were roommates. The last thing I remember was those two leaning up against the floor, up against the wall, sitting on the floor, praying for me as I was trying to go to sleep. Then I fell asleep. And when I fell asleep, the only thing I remember was having a dream, and in the dream, I went to heaven. That was the dream. Went to heaven. And in that dream, I don't know what in the world I was doing, but somebody said to me that the master wants to see you. That's all I remember. So I, I go and, and I, I stand before uh, what in that dream is supposed to be Jesus. And, and the Lord says, uh, you, you, you got, you're going back down there. You can't stay here. I said, well, no, nobody wants to leave here. Once they get here, I'm quite, quite happy being here. He said, no, no, you got to go back. And he did something with his hands. And I saw Rakid on his knees praying for me. He's praying. And he said, when you go back and you, you, you talk about prayer, you, you tell people when they pray, believe, don't give up. And if what they're praying for is, is uh, in accordance with my will, I give them the desires of their heart. And when I woke up, there they were, still praying. I had no problems. I threw those blankets off of me. And I ran around that little village of Mahata just praising God. They told me as I was laying there, they told me that my body went cold. They told me, see, they told me that they thought I had died. But God knows how to preserve his people. Yeah. When I was living in Peru, and this is where I'll stop. When I was living in Peru, living with a, a uh, Quechuan Indian speaking family, I had got amoeba dysentery. It's a terrible thing to have. Oh, it's a terrible thing to have, especially when you're skinny as I was then. And I couldn't keep any food down. And up there in those, those mountains where I was at, in the region of Pombambamba, they, they eat potatoes with everything. Potatoes for breakfast. Boiled potatoes for lunch. Potatoes for supper. The greatest danger to a farmer up there is he fall off his potato farm. I mean, just fall right off the edge. We were like 16, 17,000 feet up in the clouds up there in that little town. Never been that high in my life to live. So I was up there and hadn't been there that long. And Tiff and I were uh, uh, kind of fellowshipping and <laughs> loving each other. So I got there and got sick. And she was calling me, and I didn't tell her that I was sick. And I, I was laying there in that, uh, that bed, and the lady of the house, she's being real nice. She's wanting to look after me. And she, she came and putting together all kind of stuff. And Tiffany was calling every day or something or every other day to check on me. And I wouldn't tell her what was going on. She said, look, I had a dream. And she said, I dreamt you were over there and you were sick. You're in trouble. Now, what's going on? So I told her, I said, look, this is what's going on. I haven't eaten in days. I've been sick, been in bed, and just, just terrible stomach problems and all of this. So she prayed with me on the telephone. I get back in the bed, and sometime after this, the lady of the, the house, she comes in there, and she's saying something to me in Spanish, and, and I didn't know exactly what she was saying. But she went out in the back, and she had a cup, and she went out in the backyard where the grass and all that stuff was at. And in that cup, I saw her out there bent over putting stuff in that little cup. 
And so then she came back in the house, and I guess she put some stuff with it. So it was supposed to be some kind of form of medicine. Now, you better understand, where I was living, in order to wash my clothes, I had to go down to the river and wash it in the river and soap and rocks and all of this just to get stains and all that stuff. And she comes in there with, with that cup and just as sweet as could be, handed me that cup. And, and I'm looking at this muddy water and grass is floating. And, it, and she said something to me in Spanish, which I'm sure was something like, I think if, if, if you drink this, it'll help your tummy and you'll feel better. Now, I interpreted that as, if you drink that, you'll die. <laughs> That's how I interpreted that. And so she, she gave that to me, and I let her know, I'm just so grateful. Thank you so very much for giving that to me. And she, you know how people stand there to wait to see what you're going to do. So I just, thank you, thank you. And finally she left, and out the window that thing went. And I turned my face to the wall like Hezekiah did. And I said, Lord, I have been serving you since I was young. I do not want to die here, and I need you to let me cash in some of those chips today. And went to sleep, woke up totally whole, totally whole. So, folks, I'm telling you, walking with God is a, is a worthwhile venture. Even when other people tell you God's not interested in what you're going through and your situation, I can promise you God's your attending physician even when you don't know he's there. Yeah. If all he has to do is guide a doctor's hands, I'd say praise the Lord. But if he doesn't want to use a doctor, he doesn't have to. He can do whatever he wants to do. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you this evening for your word. We're so grateful for the gospel of Mark that has taught us to trust in Jesus. And we are not going to lose our faith in the Son of God. Thank you for giving him the down the cross for our sins. We love you and we appreciate you in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Amen.